Welcome to Healthcare Du Jour, where we dish up and digest the latest in healthcare. For the next 30 minutes, sit back as we bring you insight, commentary, and discussion on trending topics to the table, all expertly served up by our host and his guests. Healthcare Du Jour is brought to you by Carium, the telehealth platform enabling healthcare's digital transformation, helping you care for people within the fabric of their daily lives. Now here's your host, Matt Fisher. Welcome back, and thank you for joining as we dive into the hottest topics in healthcare. I'm your host, Matt Fisher. On the menu today is Adam Mariano, President and GM at LexisNexis Risk Solutions Healthcare. Adam, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a mouthful, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it, it, it is a big mouthful. And you think I would have it gotten is. used to saying LexisNexis, given that I was actually a law student rep for when I was back in law school. <laughs> It's funny. I, you know, I that was my one of my first interactions with the organization as well was whoops when I was in law school. But it's it's funny to come full circle. Yeah. So maybe before we get into that a little bit, and what I always like to do before getting into the main part of my conversation is give my guests a chance to provide more of an introduction in terms of who they are and what they do. So Adam, the floor is yours. Sure. I'll give you the elevator pitch I often give customers when I'm doing top to top conversations. Everybody sort of tells you where they're from and how they got to where they were. Um, I actually started off as a nurse. I was a, I was a pre-med uh, medical anthropology student. I had a child very young who changed all of my plans. I went to nursing school uh, and worked in the clinical space for quite some time. Uh, and following that, I got into IT, uh, working in uh, informatics and software design for a number of years and eventually settled into health informatics uh, working with payers, providers, life science organizations, what we call retail health now, which was you know, called pharmacy, pharmacy for a long time, I think. Um, along the way though, I went to law school uh, and, I, and I went to law school to primarily work with nonprofit organizations, working in civil rights and immigration spaces, supporting underserved communities like the one that I came from. Uh, and now uh, uh, ultimately landing at LexisNexis running uh, the healthcare business under the risk solutions business. Um, but having been through a pretty long arc uh, across 20, 20 plus years or so in the health informatics and software space. Yeah, that's a lot of different kind of sides of the healthcare industry that you've gone through. So what interested in you get, to get into healthcare in the first place? I think as a kid, I was interested in, in being a doctor. I think every kid at some point goes through the arc of doctor, archaeologist, you know, snail researcher or something. And I, and I, I was for a while interested in being a doctor. And I think a lot of other people told me I wanted to be a doctor as I got older. And then when I went to college, I um, was really interested in, in uh, medical anthropology and a program that actually got cut while I was there. And so I had to make some choices about was I, was I going to skip straight to uh, just pre-med, which everybody advises you against. And I, I ended up in biology. And, uh, and when I left school and went to nursing school, it was sort of an easy transition. I had a child. I wanted to stay close to medicine. It was the fastest path in. And then while while working as a nurse, I realized I didn't necessarily want to be a doctor. I didn't like the, the, the time slicing that was happening to physicians. There was a lot of heavy time burden on them. There were panels were growing and growing. They were seeing less and less face-to-face -face time with patients. And nursing gave me an opportunity to really be engaged with folks. So that's that's sort of what brought me into the fold, I think, right away. And then you were talking about kind of that journey from direct patient care into the informatics side and then later into law school. So it's, you know, I'm going to jump ahead to, I guess, to that piece and mm -hmm. start to get your thoughts in terms of, you know, how do you see healthcare and the law interacting? Well, I see it in a bunch of ways. I mean, obviously, we've got big regulatory lift associated with healthcare, whether that's 
how healthcare is delivered, the regulation of licensure, how we look at data and data access. I think the Cures Act has had um, one of the largest impacts in healthcare, both by expanding who was covered by healthcare, but also creating access patterns for patients to actually start to leverage their own data and start to be able to leverage it for what we've been, I think, paying lip service to is patient-centered care, but what can actually be patient-centered care as we go forward. And I think the other side of that is in equity and access. How do we make sure that we start working on eliminating bias and the inequities in healthcare over time? And I think the the law has a, a very big footprint to play in that space as we start to treat healthcare like another civil right. Yeah, and I think that's a really important point to make. So when you're talking about equity and access, before maybe we talk about how the law actually can help improve in both of those fronts, how do you define both of those terms? Well, I think from from an equity perspective, there's the simple and the complex. The simple is better healthcare for everybody. So um, I think on all levels, we we can raise the tide that raise all boats. I think the reality is in the way things have played out uh, in the American landscape for a very long time is that those uh, who have the least amount of, of financial freedom, so people at the bottom end of the socioeconomic spectrum, as well as black and brown uh, folks in America have always suffered the short end of the delivery stick when it comes to health care. We've got documented bias after documented bias, whether it's uh, infant mortality rates, uh, care in, in pain management. Uh, outcomes related to surgeries, post-surgical complications. You can go on and on and on. Those biases are all well-documented. and I don't know that we're telling anybody anything new there. Um, so I think the reality-based conversation around, around equity is how do we make sure that, A, we can document and then start to manage the bias and the inequitable care um, that affects everyone. So ultimately, regardless of your skin color or your gender or your ethnicity or your orientation or your socioeconomic status, you can be guaranteed when you walk in the doors of the facility, you're going to get the same level of quality of care. And that's a big lift. I don't want to understate the reality is that we have plenty of under-resourced institutions and there's plenty of obstacles to that, but that's what we should be targeting holistically. Um, that's a mouthful though, for sure. That's that's a It's a big giant plate of work. Yeah, no, kind of arguably, you know, unfortunately, with everything you described, you're, you might be kind of highlighting the bulk of the, uh, the kind of societal or uh, social issues within the healthcare industry at large. Um, and okay. a lot of kind of, I think, the topical areas that got pushed to the fore um, throughout the course of the COVID pandemic, which, you know, I think when you pay attention, have been there historically for a very long time. I think so. And I think if you if you look at this through the lens of civil rights, I think it's a system, you know, whether whether the inequity results from design or operation has been failing society as a whole. Uh, and I think, you know, th- those at risk have not only, um, I think, been excluded in some cases from from being provided the care they need, but we also don't address even their ability to consume those opportunities. So if, Something simple is the thing I point to all the time when we talk about this. If your hours of operation don't include nights and weekends, there's lots of folks who don't have sick time. There's lots of folks who don't, who can't can't afford to take a day off from work, even if they have sick time, it just really doesn't fit. Or the distance they need to travel to get care can't be operated inside of an, a window of downtime or within the window that the office is closed. It could be the daycare, all sorts of reasons. And so something that simple can change whether or not somebody actually gets the care they need. 
And then you can cascade that to everything. You can look at health and you can look at medication delivery. You can look at drug, drug prices, which we're finally starting to renegotiate where people are choosing between food and medicine, right? So there's so many vectors to take on. And you and I could probably spend an hour just talking about, you know, the inequities. Um, but I think as we think about it that way, really it's, you know, what are the pragmatic steps that we can take to reduce some of that, that uh, difficulty in getting patients the right kind of care at the right kind of times. So I'm going to take you up on that implicit uh, kind of anticipatory answer to a question. So what are some of those pragmatic steps to be able to take to help beginning to begin to address some of the equity issues? Uh, I think you're seeing some really interesting ones. So my master's is in population health and, and the focal point of my dissertation was on how do we practically apply social determinants in EMR and health system uh, activation. So essentially, how do we get those that type of information into the electronic medical records so we can prompt physicians to help patients get over the hurdles that are not healthcare related, right? And um, for those who don't don't aren't deeply steeped in social determinants, there are all the factors that influence your health outcomes that are not part of your diagnosis. And by all research at this point, you'll find that somewhere between 50 and 60% of your outcomes are actually influenced not by your diagnosis, but by those social determinants. But we don't teach them, well, historically, we didn't teach them heavily in medical school. We don't think about them when we talk about benefit design and network design on the payer side. And so I think uh, the great thing is you're seeing payers now, insurers start to talk about that in their benefit design. Not only are they looking at, do I have a provider in this zip code who has an open panel and can provide care to new patients to cover the, the population gradient, if you will, right? And uh, essentially the physician to patient ratio but also they're taking new patients, they speak Spanish, they, they are uh, wheelchair accessible, they're on a public transportation line, they have night and weekend coverage, they support telehealth, all of the things that actually might, get, might make it more equitable for patients to get that care from that site. And so that kind of design at a health plan level, a benefit level, whether that's, you know, a, 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 a payer, I mean, a, a an employer-provided plan or it's a Medicare and Medicaid dual-eligible plan really is critical if you're trying to open the doors to everybody. So just getting people over the threshold to get treated is a big problem. And so I think pragmatic steps like that are fantastic. Um, I can give you a list of a bunch of others, but that's a really good one to start with. I think everybody thinks about this. Everybody's either insured or, un or uninsured. When you're insured, you're not always able to take care of all the benefits and take advantage of all the benefits in your plan if they're poorly designed. So you know, it, it, I think it bridges the conversation about just the insurance conversation. Well, once we actually had 100% insurance, we'd still have a problem because the networks aren't designed in a way that people can take advantage of them. Yeah, and kind of even as you talk about that, it's not even just the, is the network adequately designed? But, you know, it seemed like after the Affordable Care Act, you would talk about people who are underinsured with the type of insurance they had because it was maybe not quite as expansive, or even if the design was arguably correct, you had the different issue of it was still financially unaffordable because of so much of the cost sharing um, obligations that have been shifted over to uh, individuals. A hundred percent. And you have the, the redetermination that's happening right now, where you're having a lot of people being forced off of the rolls again post-COVID, where we had lowered the threshold financially or expanded the definition to keep them on Medicaid rolls. And now they're being forced off and having to start over again, which is unfortunate because we could have automated that process. Right? You're going to look at the historical patient record. You're going to determine what their claims were and decide whether or not they're in or out. 
based on their financial threshold, all of the information of which the federal government and state governments already have. So it created unnecessarily churn in the system, which essentially pauses people's health care while we figure out the administrative portion, which is certainly not helpful. Yeah, so I'm going to try and reverse, or not reverse, but kind of alter the direction a little bit, because it seems like, you know, a lot of that setup is talking about how potentially laws or regulations were creating barriers to being able to address equity by either further encoding uh, existing equity issues or, you know, unintentionally creating new ones. So kind of starting to maybe take the positive lens, you know, where do you see laws or regulations helping to remove those barriers or direct attention efforts to, um, you know, outcomes that might be more um, beneficial to the broader population? Well, I, I think the Cures Act was a landmark for a lot of reasons. I think the expansion of healthcare and really trying to add people to roles was a critical one, I think. But the other one, which goes probably unchampioned or, or unacknowledged, is that we created a pathway for patients to own, manage, and use their own healthcare data. Essentially, what it said was all payers and providers have to make a standards-based health record available to members and patients so that they can use it in, in managing their own care from a patient-centered perspective. So that means that I can go to my, my health system, log into a portal and download that record to my phone, to a computer, or even use it in the cloud, and I can share it with anyone, people in my family, a healthcare provider, a nurse navigator, anyone who might want to help me. I can also carry it around on my phone in an application. I, I think that is an amazing thing that we finally got a, a standardized national health record, if you will. And the, the U.S. CDI, the U.S. Core for Data Interoperability, defines what that standard is. So not only do we get a standard record, but the federal government even defined what the minimum data set was you had to share, which is head and shoulders above almost any place we've ever been in healthcare previously. Um, to that end, it, it's great, but the metadata around it is a place where we can certainly start to offer some support for patients. Because if I give you your health record, odds are you're likely, unless you're also a doctor or a nurse, you're not gonna understand what it is you're looking at. So there's there's opportunity in that space as well. So even though it's a fantastic positive, we finally got access that patients really need, but to figure out how to help them with decision support tools that help them push that forward. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point where, as you said, it's, you know, the access is one step, but it's not the last step. It's really kind of that first one. And for those of you just joining, I'm talking with Adam Mariano from LexisNexis Risk, Risk Solutions Healthcare. And we've been talking a lot about uh, the background and definition of equity issues and now starting to get into, you know, how the law helps to support them, uh, and drive improvement when it comes to equity. And, you know, as we were just talking about that, you know, the rights that are now being given to patients, you know, I think, as you said, again, it's the kind of that initial step. So, you know, have you seen or been able to see trends where those actions and those rights are being utilized. And, you know, then, um, you know, kind of what flows out of there, and, you know, what kind of additional supports that you are alluding to exist that can actually help make that data actionable and beneficial. Well, you're, you're seeing a big rise of, uh, well, well, there's two categories. So the, the general wellness app, right, which has, uh, there's, um, We'll say there's a marketplace that's arisen around patients to sell you things to help you with your care. So essentially patient-directed care. Um, and those wellness applications bring data in and then um, help you drive certain goals. So whether that's a fitness goal or lowering your HbA1c or um, improving your mobility, 
those things are, are all really great. And you'll see a lot of the advocacy groups for critical conditions are out there also trying to push those kind of apps into patients' hands. And those things are great. And then you have uh, care management and pop health applications, which are being driven by the payers and the providers, which are really, if you've got a chronic condition or you're in a high-risk population, how do I interact with you on a regular basis to help you manage your care? And I think the third one is more, I would call them empowerment applications. How do we help patients manage their own condition themselves, which is how do we offer them uh, instruction? So I, I have some family members who are struggling with with uh, new diagnosis and we're going through, um, we went through some cancer and a bone marrow transplant in my family, which is a very technical, very, very uh, intensive process. And there's a ton of terminology, medications, process that nobody understands. Even most medical professionals don't come into contact with bone marrow transplants, right? They're rare enough and they're operated in a silo. And so the metadata, the, the what does this test mean? <laughs> what does this procedure and process look like? What does the protocol for a certain treatment look like? We don't explain that enough to patients. And my family's lucky because they have me as a medical professional and someone who works in informatics and other things. I can walk them through that I also have the time, but I think as we go forward, one of the big wins is going to be how do we take this metadata that surrounds these patient records and do patient education and provide them with background, give them decision support tools that we often give to the providers themselves, but we don't give to patients. So what kind of information should you be sharing with your doctor? What should you share with your family? What can you expect around this procedure? You just had this lab test. What does it mean relative to your condition? All of those, I think that that sort of halo of information, there's a huge opportunity there. And you're going to see a big, I think, a big bloom with generative AI in the space to really start to drive some insights. Yeah, and it seems like as more of that data are created and available, then we're also probably going to see a shifting of the legal framework of how to handle and protect or you know, most effectively utilize that data. You know, because right now it kind of does feel like we're at that again, at that initial stage of opening up access and mm -hmm. the ability to obtain, and then we need to be open and ready to respond as we start learning lessons and while we're moving forward. Yeah, and I, I think it's important, right? It's another training step for consumers. You now have your whole health record on your iPhone. What should you, should you, and should you not do with that data? Who should you share it with? There probably needs to be some level of certification around those applications that say, you know, this one's been this one's been vetted through this validated process. Um, I think the other thing is, what's the minimum data set that you need to share for a process? So maybe to, to make an appointment, you only need to share six elements of your health record, right? And, and maybe that's the kind of thing we need to talk about is, are there standards that we could talk about as exchange standards like we do for claims or for adding a member to a health plan? There are standard files. There are standard files. There's an 837 and 835 format. It's an EDI standard. Can we make those exchange standards for making an appointment so that a, a health patient, a, an application can be certified and it only exchanges those five or six elements that are necessary for that action. And we don't have patients sending their whole records to people who don't need them. Um, it, it is a fraught space. <laughs> Every time we make an, an innovation, we have to protect people. So it, it is a, it is, that part is concerning. Yeah, and it also seems like kind of implicit in that is the fact that we need to actually learn and be ready to evolve our understanding of what's necessary. It's you know 
seems like often the knee-jerk reaction is, oh, give me everything that I can handle or that I think I can handle because I don't want to miss an element. But then when it comes down to it at the end of the day, kind of as I think as you're suggesting, it's you really only end up needing a few little, a few key pieces of actionable information and the rest just creates risk by continually uh, sending it to so many different locations. Uh, you know, it's it's an interesting thing that the federal government established a standard that I, that I alluded to, the U.S. CDI. It is actually a, about as much of your core record as you would need to transfer between physicians to get a good read on, on care. So if you were, for argument's sake, a snowbird who spent half their time in New York and half their time in Florida, it would be enough for that, that visiting physician to take a good look at your record and be able to, to engage in care with you, at least to start and say, yeah, sure, I can add you to my panel. Um, and at, at, at LexisNexis, we're engaging in this next frontier of helping patients make their records portable. And you're running into the same conversations about, well, what should you share and when? How do you coach patients about what kind of information is in their record? How do you help them digest what comes back? Because just showing the whole medical record to folks, if you've, I'm sure you've dialed into your medical portal at some point, almost everyone had to during COVID, if you wanted any of your information, it's an awful lot of info to try to, to try to digest without a narrative, right? So what are you really trying to find out about your diabetes? Well, is it getting better or worse? Should I be talking to my doctor? Should I be going to a specialist? Is there something else I'm not doing? Can you coach me about my, my activity as it relates to my insulin consumption? Well, none of that really gets done well. <laughs> and so I think that's the next logical step, which is how do we take the burden off of physicians and nurses to offer some of that support in an automated fashion in people's, people's hands. And I think for patients, generative AI, this feels like a good spot, right? Interpretation from a, a very well-controlled library that's not sourced from the open internet, but comes from patient education materials and, is, and can really drive some viable insight. There's, there's opportunity there for sure. Yeah, and I think that's a great point where you're saying you're you're drawing from a database or a library that has been vetted and that you know is reliable and you know probably evidence based, which probably then goes into the direction of controlling your risk and your liability around it, because you know I think as you said you don't want it coming from the general internet because who knows no. the quality of that and there's so much either intentional or unintentional misinformation that's been built up in generalized databases. Not to say that, that risk doesn't exist within a curated database, but hopefully you've done as much as you can with your eyes open to minimize that outcome as much as possible. A hundred percent. And there are really well-vetted, well-recognized libraries of patient education materials, right? We manufacture them. Lots of other folks do. They're, they're, well-curated, they're narrow-banded. And I, I think there's a difference between prescriptive medicine, which is what should Dr. A do next to this patient, and decision support, which is what do you, what else should you know about this patient that you may not have visibility to? And I think the same thing applies to the consumer side, which is you're not telling a patient, I think you, know, you need to go get this test done. You're telling a patient, here's something you should probably share with your doctor, right? The, this information. Here's some information about your condition so you feel more comfortable with the test you're reading. What does this test tell you? Well, this test tells you that your diabetes is uncontrolled. If your A1C is wandering all over the place, you should cure things that people do to help control their diabetes better. And that's exercise and managing your insulin and what you eat and talk to your doctor and yada, yada. And so I think that there's opportunity to say, look, medicine is a big, giant subject. It's 
can be very scary for people. Oftentimes we only interact with the medical system when there's crisis. And so it's already fraught. How do we reduce the level of anxiety? How do we create an, an more gentle entree and more gentle interaction with, with, with medicine for folks so it doesn't feel so scary all the time, but also feels like something they have some agency and control over? And so if we truly want to get the patient-centered medicine, we have to create that. People have to feel empowered to go ask questions, to, to question their doctor, to, to be an advocate for themselves, to ask for the services they need, but also to not to, to be sure there are no dumb questions, right? Here's, here's content that you can talk to your doctor about, about your disease. If you don't understand it, click here to package up a list of questions that you can share with your doctor. And here's an easy way to share it through an email or through a text message, right? Th those things seem to be simple. Um, and you're seeing organizations try to put this kind of stuff together now. Yeah, and I think those are all great points where, as you said, it's really trying to prepare everybody who is interacting with the information or the experience to make it as positive as possible. So it's, you know, recognizing, you know, I think to some degree, the knowledge that each person brings to those interactions. You know, the medical professionals are going to know the practice of medicine the best and, you know, the potential interactions of uh, different courses of treatment or different services, whereas the individual is going to know their own body the best. And mm -hmm. if you can create a, an experience where you're truly engaging with each other, you're going to increase the likelihood of having a good outcome. You're, you're spot on. And I think this comes full circle to the equity question, right? So where we have doctors who are increasingly overloaded, you're seeing constant, there's always a new story every two weeks about how there's not enough primary care physicians, right? And we're, we're trying to extend nurse practitioners and eventually they'll be overloaded. How do you create equitable moments for patients who don't always get a 10 minute visit with their doctor? They're only going to get three or two or 30 seconds or a telehealth visit, or maybe even a chat visit. Can I offer you more of that supportive experience so you can be empowered and you're getting the same support that somebody who can pay for um, for, for arguments like Amazon now has what, what is really concierge level care. You can sign up for $2.99 a month and you can have a, a, an appointment right now with a specialist online or in person in select neighborhoods. Um, and if you can't afford to pay that extra $300 a month, can I get you something that's close to that? Or at least starts to approach that even if you're in a low income bracket, even if you haven't had access to that disposable income or can't see a doc when you feel like it. Can I support you with additional content, additional support, a well-informed, well-managed chatbot that is, is, to your point, working from a, a set of curated materials? And then when it gets to a place where it really can't answer your questions, it's forwarding you to lives. I think there are opportunities there for, for, for equitable care as well. And we're going to close the gap a little bit there, I think, with some of this. Yeah, no, and kind of you raised a good point there where it's... It can't just be a sole reliance on pay to play or, um, you know, other sources of technology where you have to continually put, you know, you know, financial backing into it because that is going to definitely leave some patient populations behind. But Adam, believe it or believe it or not, we're already almost out of time. So I'm going to close with one final question, which is sure. the fun one. So if you had a magic wand. What change would you make to increase attention to or efforts that will drive better equity across healthcare? But as I said, believe it or not, we are unfortunately already out of time. Yes. I want to thank my guest, Adam Mariano, for a great conversation today. Thank you, sir. It was a really good chat. And thank you to everyone listening. Keep the dialogue going and connect with me at hashtag HCDEJURE. I'm Matt Fisher. Until next time.